0: And welcome again to another episode of the Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Medicine podcast. And this time we're featuring an interview with Professor Kaufmann from Switzerland, from Zurich, who's done some great work um, with image fusion, and aren't we all doing image fusion or planning on it, at least with uh, combining... Uh, f- function with anatomy and that's uh with cardiac image fusing the most difficult one because we're dealing with moving objects um yes we're dealing with uh, micro refusion and pet um uh uh, fusing that with CT. um, And he's done lots and lots of work over many years and it's done routinely in his practice. I'm sure there's a lot we can learn from that. And I'd love to hear from you um, so I can learn from you. um, And so you can uh, uh, tell me a bit about what you like and what you don't like about the podcast. So if you're going to the EANM meeting um, in Birmingham in the United Kingdom in October, I'd love to hear from you. You can find out about it at the website, nukecast.com, N-U-C-C-A-S-T com or google nuclear medicine podcast or go to itunes and go download all so you can get some of the great episodes that we've had but i'd love to hear from you at the AM meeting and i'm also going to the international atomic energy agency meeting in november in vienna and uh, that's dealing with um uh, pet and molecular imaging something we haven't done enough of on the podcast i'm sure the pet people out there will be very keen we're dealing with some of the top people in the world with that so please um Uh, Get in touch with me at newcast.com, rob at newcast.com, and uh, let's get straight to the interview, so uh, without any further delay. Professor Kaufman um, interviewing at the ICNIC meeting, that's the International Nuclear Cardiac Meeting in Amsterdam, and Professor Kaufman's going to talk about image fusion. So let's get straight to that. Uh, we're here at uh, ICNIC and uh, we're just uh, about to start the gala dinner, but before that um, um, I'm going to uh, talk to uh, uh, Professor Philip Kaufman, who's from uh, Zurich uh, in Switzerland, and uh, they've been uh, dominating this meeting in a lot of respects with regards to the two main topics of our meeting, that's uh, uh, nuclear cardiology and CT, and um, and they've been doing lots of work combining both of those things. Um, and I'd like to learn from that, and I, perhaps the listeners might like to learn a little bit from that also. Um, so uh, before we start, um, um, Dr Kelpin, could you perhaps uh, tell us a little bit about um, uh, where you work and, and the group of uh, people you work with? Because I saw quite a lot of collaborators with your work as well, uh, who i v- very impressed by.
1: Thanks very much indeed for uh, offering me the opportunity to talk to you and to do this podcast. Um, well, with regard to my background, I, I have the pleasure to work in Zurich. There we have um, a cardiac imaging section. And I think that's, uh, that's a unique uh, situation that uh, there is a section which is it's hosted by the Department of Radiology. But it allows me to run the whole cardiac imaging. That means I'm running the MR service. I'm running the CT, the cardiac CT, mainly CT coronary and geographies. I'm running the SPECT and also the PET. And that offers me you know, the possibility to see the whole range of imaging modalities. That also means that my people learn them all, uh, that they see that we can work across the boundaries. But they also see that there are limitations there, here, and there, and that none of the techniques is perfect. And they are not living, you know, if you don't make your living out of one technique, you, you'll probably be a little less biased. If you live from one technique, you will, you will be a, probably biased. If that makes your living, your existence is based on one technique, you will find that the, the one, the best, and you, and you have to fight for it. And I think it is, um, it is an advantage that we, we can have them all. I'm a cardiologist by training, but I'm also a nuclear physician. In in this sequence, I did the training. That's why it's not paralyzing. It's It's just a sequence that I did the training. And I have a lot of brilliant young fellows. Many of them come just from medical school. And I tell them, all you need to know is to read and to write, but you need to be able to work in a team. That is easy to say, but difficult to live. And that's what counts. And we are, a, we are a great team. We're a team of technicians. We're a team of chemists. We're a team of engineers. And then there are some doctors running around and trying to do something also. But, and mainly, we're there for patients. That, that's the priority. We're a hospital. We're doctors. We care for patients. We want to be the best in caring patients. And then, if you still have some free time and our minds free enough to think about, we do some brainstorming. And then eventually we come up with a good idea, or my, my, my young fellows, and that's why I, I, I like them to have them young for medical school, they're fresh. And, uh, you know, people told me, well, you're doing research, you're 40 years of age. I'm 46, actually. But forget about research. You will never achieve anything. If you haven't achieved, you know, something now, forget about The brain is decreasing after 20, so I, I take the young guys, and they have brilliant ideas. And some of the ideas came up discussing with them that anatomy and function, are two big parts of ischemic heart disease. We have a lesion, a narrowing of the artery, which causes ischemia. But of course, not every lesion causes ischemia. Not every ischemia has the same consequences. And um, it's it's a whole it's a whole spectrum. Atherosclerosis eventually develops, may not cause ischemia, but may kill the patient. So it, it's a whole spectrum that we would like to cover in a way. And at the moment, um, many people are fixed on one side of the of the spectrum. They look at the anatomy and then. Some interventional cardiologists actually, they stent these lesions, although they they know they should look at the functional relevance, but sometimes they don't because they're also driven by some facts. Like, for example, they are in the CAT lab, see a lesion. Why going out again into the nuclear department and coming back and, and so on? So these are all things that we have to think about before. And then, and, and then that's why, you know, we have a couple of consultants in the CAT lab in my, in my hospital, in the university hospital in Zurich. Two of them have trained in my team one started as the first fellow with me about 11 years ago he's now a consultant in catlab and runs the catlab together with the, with another guy and the the second one who is consultant with me on tuesdays the other four days a week he is consultant in catlab so we have direct direct you know collaboration we have open channels and they they really know what we can do but mostly they know what we can't offer and that's very important because if you sit there and, and, and think you have great methods. You, you, over, you tend to overestimate them. But you need to know the limits. That's the most important thing. If you need to know your tools, but you need to know what they can't do. That's very important. And so the, we realize that anatomy is something that we can treat, but at the end we want to treat ischemia. So we need to know, is a lesion causing ischemia big enough to affect the patient's outcome? Because only then we can improve it. Because what we want to do, and the justification of our work, is improving patient's outcome. The big four of outcomes are... Improvement in quality of life, length of life, not harming them, and being cost-effective. We cannot match all of them at the same time, but we should tend—you know—the balance should be positive. And it can only be positive if someone has, for example, an impaired outcome. You can improve it if it's not impaired by a little bit of a tiny ischemia or a little bit of a tiny atherosclerotic plaque. Yeah, then you can't improve the outcome, and it's not worth spending any money. No. And uh, and so this is—you know—this is all the. Uh, This is all about what we think imaging should do. We should image the disease, it should show that we can assess the risk, it should predict prognosis, and it should, at the end, guide an appropriate treatment strategy which improves patient's outcome and and is cost-effective. And we're on the way on that, and there is a lot of pieces of the great big picture puzzle that are being produced. And our group had the privilege that, for some reason, we were able to convince some people in the industry, one of the big vendors, um, that we could be their alpha site where they send their engineers or they invite me to the engineers we have phone calls every week I, we, I can give them my input what do I expect from a new technology and then eventually their marketing guys think okay, it's, it's even possible for marketing maybe, maybe some ideas they thought it may be great or it may be useful but marketing at the end kills it or the other way around they think that's a funny idea but marketing would work so um, so that's how we collaborate, and then we get prototypes. And we can try to run the prototypes. We can give direct impact, direct input to them, the engineers. We develop things, and then at the end, it turns out that it was not the absolute perfect idea, but we learned a lot, and then we go in another way. Right. So this is collaboration with all the all the players. Patients, they matter a lot because we're there for them, and their comfort is is our absolute aim. So if they tell me, look, this machine is horrible, you know, one patient told me I prefer a cat than a scan in your machine. That really you know, I was sitting there a week and thought, My God, we did something terribly wrong. Because if that if that is is what is you know, perception is reality. If they perceive a non invasive test worse than an invasive one, then then definitely something went wrong so i I talk with the patients a lot i talk with their family members that they you know i show them the machine and tell them do you think that you will get them claustrophobia or do you think and then they tell me look if it would look like this or that then maybe i I would feel comfortable and then we think whether this can be realized or can be suggested at least so there's a lot of dynamic i think being open-minded keep the field dynamic and having a lot of young people bringing their brain and 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 sharing the enthusiasm with me, that is is what makes the job great. And with this, we we came to the idea to to look for hybrid imaging. Hybrid imaging means to me I get a piece of information on anatomy, coronary lesions, and I get a piece of information on the perfusion, which tells me if there is a lesion, it's going to be this one, which causes ischemia, but not the other one, so that I can guide the interventionalist. Sometimes in the CAT lab, I see several lesions. And sometimes in the perfusion scan, if I'm happy enough that the patient got a perfusion scan before going into the cat, I see maybe one perfusion defect, but in the cat I see several lesions. Now, doing this side-by-side analysis and matching that, integrating mentally the two parts of, of the information, it can be terribly hard because in the nuclear scan we have a rough idea that the anterior wall is the LAD and the inferior wall is the RCA but But it's not always always like this at all and and then um, there was a nice paper uh, there were two of them one just recently showed that about 55% of the patients have a territory matching that what is written in the textbook you know, a territory assignment to the arteries. And what about the other 45 Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> if, if, if if it happens to, that you're among those, and it happens in 45 percent of the cases, obviously, well, then, um, you know, so you, you would like to be more more certain that the treatment and the stent they're going to put, which can harm you, is going to give you such a benefit that it outweighs... Uh, you know the, the harm by far. So this this was the idea. The, that's where it all started, and we have developed right. on that.
0: And the most denosed vessel is not necessarily the, the one that's causing the, the disease, or perhaps the most denosed vessel leads to an infarct. In which case, you, there's no point re-stenting that. You're looking at what's going to benefit the patient. Exactly. And, and by combining those images, that means that you're going to um, give the correct treatment, and perhaps you're going to do a few less stenting So you might actually save some money as well. Absolutely, because if you look at the recent data, last year in March, there was a great publication
1: in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took 500,000 patients in the US who got an elective invasive coronary Not even 40% of them had a lesion in the cat. Not even 40%. That means that 60% anywhere went for nothing. Then,
0: but you know, one in 1,000 dies. And contrast. And contrast causes. Renal disease, doesn't it? Of course. It causes anaphylaxis, doesn't it? It kills and the, people at a measurable rate. Oh, and
1: the coronary artery, I mean, the cat in the coronaries may kill one in a thousand in a diagnostic coronary geography, so you, you count how many. And then the radiation they get is much higher than the non invasive imaging. Well, it turns out that the 40% had a lesion. Now, how many of these you can justify to go to the cat? Because not all of these, with a little bit of a lesion, would require then a stenting. And that's so. So half of the patients are done anyway because with the non-invasive, we don't even send them to the cat. The other half, probably half of them again, wouldn't need to go to the cat because either they have no ischemia or they have a small ischemia where a cat is not justified because medication is as good, which has been proven in the COURAGE trial uh, two, two or three years ago, which which holds true for. For length of life and quality of life, because the Courage 2 publication in England showed that the quality of life was even equal, not only the length of life, but also the, <laughs> the quality of life after 12 months, the curves merged perfectly. That means that it doesn't mean, and don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean at all that making a proper diagnosis with an angiogram and making a good treatment with a stent is, is of no use, not at all. We, I do not perceive my business at all as an antagonist to the interventional cardiology. I serve. On a silver platter, the patient very well, very well evaluated. To my well former fellows who come to me and tell me, "Come on, you didn't do the right job. If I'm not doing it," so I, I serve them a very well evaluated patient, and they know exactly which of the lesions they are going to treat. And that's in favour of the patient, right. in favour of everyone. So, so it's not at all them. an antagonist. Don't get me wrong. I, I think, uh, I think in the COURAGE trial, um, the reason why interventions were not more successful or more helpful than than medications uh, was um, was that the, they did, you know, they did just randomise all the patients. But if you would have taken those with the larger schema, they would have, by, most certainly, they would have been, a, uh, you know, they would have benefited from it. And in fact, in the COURAGE nuclear sub-study, which was also discussed here at this meeting, they could clearly show that if you have more than 10% ischemia, you deserve a revascularization. If, if you decrease the, the ischema by, about, by more than 5% points, you have the biggest benefit in terms of outcome. So definitely patients do benefit from it, but only if they are very well evaluated and you can say more than 10% ischemic. extent, then these patients definitely have an improvement of their outcome. Now, the one thing that that um, you know, we have learned is also, how do we get these numbers? How, how can I tell you that the extent of the schema is 10%? Can I do that with MR? Now, at the moment, the answer must be no, because I, if I do an MR perfusion, I, I may have three or four slices of the heart. I, I can, of course, not tell you how many percent of the whole heart this is, but because I just have three or four slices. Or with ultrasound? Well, with ultrasound, that might be echocardiography, stress echo, that, that is an option. That because you can count the segments. And the uh, real numbers, as, as, as good as you get it with the nuclear, I, I'm not quite sure because you just, you know, you may have 16 segments or how many segments you have in the echo. And then you say, well, it's one or two segments, and then you can roughly estimate. Yeah. You, you might not be as precise, but in the guidelines, in the European guidelines for revascularizations, and these guidelines were published last year in September, in 2010 in the European Heart Journal. They were written by the interventional cardiologists in Europe by the European Association of Interventional Cardiology, of the ESC, they wrote that the only two Class One indications for for um, for intermediate probability symptomatic patients is either a stress echo or a nuclear SPECT scan. The alternatives are MR or PET, which are Class Two indications because they do not have yet. We don't have, yet have outcome data, while we have it for ECHO and, and spec,
0: That means if a patient right. uh, symptomatic intermediate which is, probability... Which is why the NICE guidelines came out exactly the exact, way they did. Absolutely. Which they said, um, uh, not, uh, not MR, and they also said not stress ECG.
1: Exactly. They, they have, so that's to to, to have a very big surprise, very courageous, they came up and said, we don't need a stress ECG anymore because we have the other options which are better and more straightforward. That is quite impressive, and we will see whether, you know, the, the test of time will then show that this was right. a good decision. Well, I think the data are there to support that, for example, a nuclear scan is an appropriate test to guide you for the treatment. Right. Then, of course, there is CT angio, there is MR, there is hybrid imaging, there is a
0: lot of things, no. but and we have guidelines and we have evidence at the moment. And, and then and then there's the Empire trial that showed that if you go straight to angiogram, of course, not only is in quality of life, but you actually kill people. You, you, they die at a greater rate if you do that. So, not only saving money, but uh, but saving. So there's a whole lot of reasons why we should combine it. The next thing is how. How do you do that?
1: Well, yeah, we, what, what we do is, as I mentioned, is um, we do hybrid hybrid imaging very often. How how With do we one do imaging? Machine or two machines? Exactly. That's, I think one one thing I can say for sure, hybrid imaging is a great thing, but you do not need a hybrid machine. Full stop, that's it. You need a software. We have, de- we have developed the concept of that software. It was then um, eventually ev- ev- evaluated and promoted, and it's also now commercially available. There is different vendors. One is G, GWA, the first one. It, it's, it was called Card Fusion. I'm sure the other vendors have also software. You just need a software. With that software, you can take a nuclear scan from a scanner from any vendor and a CT data set from a scanner from any vendor, and you can fuse it. Right, and, uh, you, and you can extract the, the coronary arteries and you, put them on top of That is exactly the idea. We, we extract the coronary arteries, we put it on the nuclear scan, and then we know after this which artery is serving which territory, and therefore we know which lesion is going to cause the ischemia on which territory and which needs a stent. That's no. the trick. We, we're not doing the diagnosis of the lesion on the 3D volume-rendered pictures because we're looking at transaxial um, you know projections we, we go through, and mm-hmm. then we look where are the lesions, then eventually we do a multiplanar reconstruction. but then, to assign the artery to its subtended territory for this purpose, we do a three d volume branded heart whereby the heart from the CT is being made transparent, and then we take the colors from the nuclear and then we have a panoramic view of the heart and the arteries, and then we know exactly which vessel serves the ischemic territory, and so we can guide the treatment
0: right so. Actually, what you're doing is, an, is, is more about communication than Absolutely. diagnosis. Would that be a fair comment? I would say so. I would say so. You know, there was, you know,
1: it, it's all about imaging and image. You know, there was a, a tennis player. You may have heard her name, Anna Kournikova. Yeah. You know, she, did she ever win a tournament? No. I don't think so. She never did win any <laughs> tournament, but you know her name, you know, and she's out of business. A while, but it's because, you know, of her, her appearance and everything like that. She worked as a model. So, image and imaging, you know, they're, they're quite close. I, I would like to, <laughs> that's for sure. I think that that all the referring doctors who may refer five cases a year, if they get these short axis slices and some strange reconstructed arteries, they just, they're lost. And, of course, it's not them going to take a decision on the treatment, but if the patient goes back to them and they get a picture where they clearly see, here's the lesion, here is the ischemia, they can tell the patient, look, I know exactly what you have, and I'm going to choose and make sure that they choose the best treatment for you. So I'm sure there is a lot of effect and impact, more than we could see. There is more than meets the eye. It's just, you know, it's a lot of impact that you are sure. And each patient that I, I show you in the picture, they say, OK, I know exactly what I have. Now you tell me what is the best treatment, and I trust you because I know you, you know what I have.
0: There's been a lot of studies that have shown that if a patient trusts and believes in a doctor, they actually get better. They actually have better sure. outcomes. Isn't this
1: part of that? I think this is exactly how it works. Medicine was based on the fact that the GP, the doctor, whoever did care of his patient, he was a trustful personality. 30% of the effect of any treatment is placebo. But you have to work for this placebo. You have to make sure that, that the patient is Giving his full truth, he lies his life eventually in your hands, so you, you need to be you know, you need to give some tender loving care, but also to be to, to prove that you are that that you, that you are you, you are competent in what you 're doing and and one could be that you can visualize them because you know these pictures tell you more than a thousand words that 's why the calcium score is not working in terms of improving compliance of the pa- patient of, for stop to smoke, you know, stopping smoking. They, they wouldn't... Stop. If they tell me, yeah, you know, Egerton's score is 573, it's pretty high. They say, well, I don't care about it. But if you show him a heart with a lot of calcified plaque and eventually in
0: his schema, he would say, OK, I understand what you're talking about. So not only do we need to produce these pictures, but we need to actually transmit them to the cardiologist... Yes. ..and to the GP and, you know... Sens- Communication is really... That's key. I think if we do pictures
1: and we do not communicate to the referring doctor what these pictures means, then it happened what happened in the very famous Part 2 trial where my colleague Rob Bieland from Canada did an excellent study. He was the only one to prove that the use of FDG for viability assessment is improving patient's outcome. So he did a treatment arm with and one without PET. It turned out at the end that the difference was not significant. Why? Because only in 60% of the cases, the doctors who got the report from PET would then act accordingly. If he said revascularized, only 60% did so. If he took then only the so-called adherence arm, only those where they adhered, there was a perfect and significant difference. That taught me a lot. You know, we have to sit down so if you and write a report, their language.
0: And you have a good picture with the report, they might actually act on the words that are in the report? I, I believe so. Well, that's a lesson to us all, and it means that we actually need to make that extra bit of effort. I mean, it actually takes a bit of effort to to, to, to get the, um, the systems right, to, to make sure that our reporting systems are right, to send those pictures, that our PAC systems are working properly to send those pictures, that we've got the software right to process But also, there's a this side of it. If we're going to go fusing the CT data, we could use that for attenuation correction. There's been some vendors around that show that as well. So... Um, so it can actually, you know, improve outcome as well. Um, Definitely. But as well as communication. Well, that's... Communication you know, that's as well.
1: Communication, I think, is, is really key because we're human beings, you know. We're not computers. We give digital numbers and then something happens. We're, we're human beings. And even the revascularization may act differently... If you're well prepared for it, and you, you you know this is now the best treatment, it it will work better. I'm or sure. Or
0: the lifestyles uh, change. You need to exactly. make lifestyles. You need to have bariatric uh, surgery. So you important. need to do exercise. You need to do those it's things. It's so
1: important and and convincing. And and you know it starts with being convinced as a doctor that what you say is is the best you could do and is is the truth because you're convinced There are equivocal findings. But with the hybrid pictures, we have much less. We have studied that and published that. The equivocal findings were significantly reduced. And that's what makes it, if, if I'm as a doctor, I'm not just telling, but I'm, I am convinced, then the patient will feel the trust. That's why we do, usually we do double-blinded studies, exactly to exclude the, this effect. And, and we, we now can offer this effect actively. We are convinced. We can convince better the patient, and he will know that he needs to change his lifestyle. He can take medication, and he will avoid a bypass surgery. That's a great deal, I think.
0: Yeah. So effective communication within your team, effective communication to the referrers and effective communication to the patients and effective communication of all this to other people via the podcast. Thank you very much. I thank you, you very much for the opportunity to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> Thanks. That was a really interesting interview. I'm sure you found it as interesting as I did. But please, I'd love to know what you think, and I'd love to hear about you here if you're coming to the EANM meeting or the International Atomic Energy Agency meeting. Um, so get in touch with me. Um, our website has got the details how to get in touch with you, but it's rob.newcast.com, um, and or if you just want to Google Nuclear Medicine Podcast. So please get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Um, uh, until then, cheerio.